the enemy gets a vote. No plan survives first contact. This is Yoakum Strength Podcast with me, your host, Austin Yoakum, and producer Marcus Sasson behind the scenes. This quote leads us into our guest today, Andy Ryland. Coach Ryland is USA Football's Senior Manager of Education and Training, a former Division I football player, and he was also a member of the USA men's rugby team. I first heard of Coach Ryland on a seminar he gave about grappling and how we could use it in sport. I've been a big fan of his message and training philosophies ever since, and he does an amazing job of keeping the goal the goal. Today, we talked about speaking the languages of your sport, the difference between weight room strength and on-field strength, and diving into the why of what we are doing. The more I talk to these high-level coaches, the more I start to realize that it's, again, and I mentioned this in a lot of the podcasts, but it's less about the straight X's and O's of training, and it's more about how they're able to draw upon their other knowledge bases and their, their other facts that they have in their life. Maybe it's a book outside the field. Maybe it's another sport as it is with Coach Ryland today, but how they're able to draw upon these different experiences and then funnel it into their coaching and funnel it into who they are as a human. So you'll see that reoccurring again and again. I just mentioned it because we have a lot of young interns that are wondering what strength books to read and wondering if super training is the way to go, or maybe it's supple leopard, or maybe it's these ways. And when you look at these high level coaches, you start to realize that they're really trying to grab from all different kinds of experiences. And it doesn't have to be so rabbit hole into one thought process. I hope you guys got something out of this podcast. And if you did, it would really help if you guys rated it kind of helps push us forward into where we want to go with this podcast, where we want to take it and kind of get the guests that we want to get. So thank you guys for listening. Hopefully we're continuing to provide value. Keep chopping wood. Awesome. Well, Coach, it's awesome to have you on the podcast. I'm really excited to have you here. Could you uh, tell the tell the people and the listeners a little bit about yourself and how you got into the world of sports performance and where you're at now? Yeah. First off, appreciate you having me on. Love the opportunity. Uh, obviously, you've had some great coaches previously, so uh, uh, always cool to try to contribute and, and follow in some of the guys who I really look up to's footsteps. But uh, currently, I'm the senior manager of education and training at USA Football. Uh, we are the sports youth and amateur governing body. Um, I tell people that if it wasn't for the Olympics, most people wouldn't know USA basketball and USA hockey. You kind of only know the NHL and the NBA. Well, because football isn't an Olympic sport, everyone knows the big time college in the NFL, but there is a, a governing body recognized by the uh, U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee, and that's us. And I work extensively in the education side. So uh, I'm our lead educator and then a technical editor and a technical writer specifically around contact uh, and prep for contact skills. The long story of how I got here, I guess, is uh, so I grew up the son of a coach. And this had a huge impact on me that I didn't know till later in life. Right. Um, my father was a rugby coach at Penn State University. And a lot of a lot of us here in the States will say their college exposure to rugby is kind of just like, you know, beer, drinking, party, frat boy kind of kind of stuff. But uh, even in the late 90s and early 2000s, there was some high performance stuff going on. So my father, as a head coach, actually went to seven final fours and three national championship games, lost them all, which is right. Good dinner table conversation. But, um, you know, when I was a young kid, 
you know, I got to go to the final fours as like an equipment manager and ball boy. And I was just always around it, you know, games on weekends, you know, going up to practice, stacking up all the pads and dummies and, you know, jumping off bleachers on a, on a mats, you know, you and your brothers created just, just grew up in that sports environment, um, played multiple sports, like most of us in that 30 to 40 age bracket, you know, just running around the neighborhood, making up our own games, but then played soccer and a little bit of baseball, gave up baseball early because, uh, made one of those travel soccer teams and you get to go to like Virginia and, and fun places for tournaments, played basketball in high school, football in high school. Uh, and then was lucky enough to go to Penn state where I played football. And that's kind of where the, the journey started for me. So in, in high school with our football and, uh, basketball program, we did have weight training. We had, uh, the classic story, but I mean, it couldn't get any better. Uh, George Walker was his name. He was a master's power lifter, an older gentleman, and he was a butcher at one of the local supermarkets, right? Like just a stereotype. And he ran the weight room uh, in our high school. But, you know, playing sports, uh, you you start training, you start working out, you, you enjoy it. And then when I went to college, uh, I actually wanted to be a strength coach. So my schooling uh, was in kinesiology, movement science, uh, you know, for graduation, you have to do like, an, you know, your internship and work at a facility or with college athletes. So I work at a facility because I was an athlete. So that separation of uh, kind of the teams and the athletes that you knew, but really wanted to be a strength coach all through college. Um, my limited success, eight career starts. So let's not get, get carried away, but eight career starts at Penn state as a linebacker probably came from the mental side of the game. Uh, I had a good feel for our defense. I, you know, one of those guys that could draw up every position and the whole deal. So I started traveling early cause I could cover multiple positions and playing on special teams and that kind of stuff. But cause I kind of had the mental side of the game. A lot of the coaches encouraged me, uh, to get into coaching. Uh, I wasn't going to make the NFL. That was pretty clear, but they were encouraging me to get into coaching. So uh, this interesting mix of everyone's telling me to get into coaching and I was being trained and wanted to be a strength coach. And, and eventually I decided that I was going to do neither. I wasn't ready to give up, <laughs> give up sports yet. So post-college uh, my father's influence finally kicked in and I was playing some rugby and I ended up making the U S national team. Uh, so I spent three years in the U S national team set up, uh, earned caps, which is an official, uh, game, uh, for the U S national team in both 15s and sevens. Uh, and so I was playing rugby, you know, it was overseas in, in Ireland and New Zealand, you know, your, my first away game with the U S national team, you go on a tour of Europe. My first start was, uh, versus Romania in Japan. So freaking big 10 away games are in Minnesota. I'm going to Japan. Like, this is awesome. You're living the dream. And the reason I tell people that part of the story is to just expose me to a completely different culture. As far as the way training happens, um, the way the game is coached. Uh, and I've mentioned this before, I think on some other podcasts, but rugby is a free flow sport, probably more similar to lacrosse or hockey, basketball, where, you know, there's no stops, there's no plays, the coaches, aren't, you know, telling you what to do. So you have to read and adjust. So the coaching is really structured around the players being able to make those decisions and see stuff on the field. And that really opened up the player centered approach to me, which is probably the antithesis of traditional football coaching. Right. And so that had huge impacts on me going forward. Um, in my career after the 2007 world cup, which I did not make by the way, which is another great dinner table conversation made the, the 50 man, uh, kind of trial team didn't make the final 31, uh, retired, uh, 
and got right into coaching. Wasn't a lot of rugby opportunities here in the States. So I lucked out. My high school co-captain was an FCS running back coach and they happened to have some openings. And so I got in at the FCS level coming six months after I retired from playing three years of international rugby, having been away from the football game as a full position coach. Um, so I was a limited earnings guy, which is, uh, you know, common for that level, but you know, I wasn't a GA. I was a, I was a position coach. I had my own room. I had the outside linebackers. And so that also changed things drastically because it's like, I've never done anything but sports at this point, right? You, you played, you go to college, you train to be a strength coach. Everyone tells you to be a football coach. You go play some rugby in this strange three year interlude. And then all of a sudden you are a football coach and now you're like, okay, well, I guess it all worked out. Uh, quickly realized that, um, the coaching lifestyle here in college football wasn't for me. So I'm from a foster adoptive family. There's nine of us. Uh, I have a brother, a half brother. I have a brother and a sister who we jokingly call solos. I have two brothers that are related to each other, but not, you know, the rest of the group, two sisters, you know, they're related to each other, but not to the rest of the group. So we're this mishmash kind of awesome family. And I grew up with this vision of the type of father that I wanted to be. Now it sounds like absolute blasphemy because all my mentors are coaches, right? But it just wasn't the right lifestyle for me. So I started looking for other opportunities. This USA football thing came up. Um, I had an interesting background of international experience. I understood academy systems. I understood what people meant when they said U18 and U19. And we weren't talking about juniors and seniors in high school. Uh, but I could also speak the football language. And so that's how I ended up here. And then recently, I've, I don't know, started to do quite a bit of work with strength and conditioning coaches here in the States uh, and overseas, actually, um, especially with the rugby uh rugby teams and guys from the rugby background, because I always kept up on my studies of strength and conditioning because I thought it would make me a better football coach. You know, I wanted to understand physiology. I wanted to understand motor learning. I was that weird guy in the football office, you know, back in 2008, 2009, kind of early days of sports science. Like, why is Andy always reading all this weird Australian stuff? Well, like, well, that's where all the sports science was coming from. Like, why are all these Russian books on Andy's desk names I can't pronounce? Like, I was trying to learn about, you know, motor skill learning and, and transference and how we can work all that into football because I wanted to be the best football coach I could be. And so I've stayed with that ever through. I've stayed plugged into really all three areas uh, as much as I could. And if I were to attribute success, uh, which sounds completely egotistical, but you know what I mean, to, to anything, it's probably just the ability to translate. Just the fact that you can speak three different languages and talk to different coaches from different sides and put things in perspective. And hopefully that's made me useful to people because I can help bridge some gaps and understand some learnings and and help groups maybe get together or maybe oh, help groups learn from each other because I can put what one group is saying into the other one's language. And so travel around, do a bit of consulting and a lot of presenting, a lot of training as our lead educator, just around these topics and around how we can learn and integrate kind of the best practices we know from one thing to the other. I, I love that point. Um, it's very, every coach that I've had on here has talked about the stuff that they use and that sets them apart in the strength conditioning world has nothing to do really with strength conditioning world. No. And I think that, yeah, and I think that applies really well with you is you are able, like you mentioned, to be able to draw from 
totally different backgrounds and get out of a little bit of that group thing. Cause I think when we see a lot of football coaches or we see a lot of strength coaches or whatever sector it is, they surround themselves with the same people that have the same ideas and it gets pushed forward, forward. And it's, it's never really evolving or changing. Yeah. It's, you know, it goes kind of to Epstein's latest book range, right? Where it's like, if you, if you have down. this, yeah, right. If you have this diverse background and you can apply it to different things, um, you know, it's, it's useful. And everyone says like when you're at a clinic or when you're talking to somebody, man, I'll learn from anyone. I'll, I'll steal from anyone. I'll, I'll do whatever I can to get better until it challenges your way of thought. Right. And then it's like, "Ah, I don't want to learn from everyone. And so I just think that maybe part of softening the edges is being able to put it in their language or to describe it. I mean, even when I was in college, you know, uh, we had professional teams from New Zealand and Wales uh, and in Australia. Australian AFL team that would come over to visit. You know, it's common for pro teams to go do these go do these visits and to stop by a major college program is is you know normally one of the things on their docket. And I got tasked with hosting all three times because they're like, well, Andy, he knows that rugby stuff. Like his dad's involved, so I'm I'm hosting. You know, I remember hosting uh, guys from the Giants in the AFL uh, before the GSW Giants got started. Now they're one of the best sports performance programs recognized in the world, but they were still a startup and they were doing a tour of, of some colleges and they were out here in Indianapolis. And I ended up uh, hosting them here at USA football and taking them to meet some of our local programs just because I could speak those languages. So it's ended up in some great opportunities that have helped me immensely in, in amazing connections, just purely out of like, well, who's going to be able to talk like, Hey, Andy can do it. He, he speaks three languages and, uh, you know, you'll hear everybody, especially in the new high performance model, talk about breaking down silos. And what I, to me, this, that's one of the key ways to do it is if I can't speak your language, if I can't put it in ways you can understand or relate it to what you do every day, like it's hard to break down those those walls. Those things go up because it's, you know, oh, this guy doesn't get it. He's the white coat. He's the lab guy. He doesn't understand football. He doesn't understand rugby. And the same thing, the strength coaches are saying like, gosh, these guys just don't understand the human body at all. All they know is recruiting and tactics and their old school drills. And it's like, okay, those are probably all true to be honest, but let's, let's see how we can massage them out and, and learn from each other. And because I'm not involved with the team necessarily, particularly like kind of in that consultant gig, you're probably better positioned to help bridge those gaps because you're not a threat to anyone. Like I don't want any of your jobs. I don't want to be a, uh, a full-time football coach. I don't want to be a full-time strength coach. I really will enjoy what I do in kind of in this performance sector. So let me just see what I can do. I talk about that all the time of, I can tell my football coaches or I can tell any coach that I want how good that, let's say the Bulgarians are, or even how good the grappling that we do is. But until I mention that it's going to help in their cover two scheme, until I mention that it's going to help them put the ball into the end zone uh, and nothing really clicks. They, 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 they look at me like, who cares about this stuff? Yeah. And it's, I, I learned this. So one of my mentors is a, a rugby coach named Richie Gray, who any of the rugby fans will, will, will know quite well. And he tells a story about working with the strength coach in South Africa. And I thought it was a great program. He just outlined, these are the positions that I want our, our guys to be able to play in. Like our guys need to be able to do these things. Like you're the pro, you know what I mean? Like, I don't care what you do, like, but help me get them to do this thing. 
And it, you know, like if you can take that approach, like these are the body positions we want, these are the places we need to be really strong. And if sport coaches can stay away from, you know, we need to be great at the bench press. No, no, tell me where we need to be strong and I'll develop the program that helps build those things up. And so that approach has been very useful, at least for me to try to say like, okay, you know, tell me what you need out of your guys and we'll, we'll help work around that. You know, from the S and C side, it's tell me what you need from practice recovery structure to be able to build these guys. And we can help work with the coaches to try to make some of those, those things happen. So I think some of that is speaking again, speaking the languages of let the pros be pros. You know what I mean? I don't want my uh, podiatrist doing my neurosurgery here. So let's let the pros be pros and just make sure we communicate the right information across the line so they can do what they do. Yeah. I talk all the time about trying to keep the goal, the goal and to really do that. Like, you know, like you mentioned uh, the bench press, like a lot of coaches are looking at that bench press number, but if we really break down the sport and if we really break down what we want out of the sport, because I think there's two parts to that is realizing what the actual goal is, you know, yeah. if, we, and we, if we haven't broken down the sport, do we really know what we want out of that practice or out of that lifting session or out of that technical session? And every once in a while you get hit in the face when you like hear a great story. And I have no way to know if this is true or not, but I have always heard that, you know, uh, Buddy Morris, who, you know, was with the Cardinals for a long time and obviously uh, Pittsburgh and other places like during the preseason would do a lot of eccentric work on the bench press. Cause he was like, our guys just threw like 10,000 punches a day during offensive line training. The last thing we need is more concentric, you know, horizontal press work. Like, and all of a sudden you start looking at it like that and you're like, Oh man, like, this stuff is so interconnected. We could start drawing dots and, and playing with things. But uh, yeah, I think we, we jump to conclusions and we don't get to the root. So people say like, Hey, we want to be strong in the, in our pass protection punch. Now the, the coach says, Hey, we got to be awesome in the bench press. Well, is that the actual goal? Or is that just like what one person thinks the fastest way to uh, the end is? And so sometimes you got to ask yourself why five times and, you know, break it down to its component parts and then be like, actually you want to be faster and more powerful in this action. Like as a strength coach, I can do that for you. Like, but you also got to trust me and you got to let me, you know, work with the guys and do what you do, what we, we need to do. So tell me what you need. Don't tell me what you think the path to get there is. Yeah. And so your philosophy on how to do that, cause, and you talked about how you are working in these three different settings. Is that your way you go about it is really breaking it down with the five OIs and going through there, is it taking a look at their practice and seeing the missing links? Like what is your overall, like how do you go into a place or how do you try to educate people about all this stuff? Yeah. Great question. I've actually had some conversations with some, some of the guys that I work with who we kind of do the same thing on this. And the first thing for me is, is, at the performance levels. And, you know, there's some difference, right. When you're looking at, cause I also work on the youth side with USA football. And then you go up to the that high performance side is no one at the performance side, in my humble opinion, like these, you know, they're not looking for a brand new system. You know, you may have 10, 15, 20 years of experience. They're, they're comfortable. They're looking for the little tweaks and gold nuggets. They can get better. So the first thing that I always do, like if we're talking about contact or tackling is, you know, I spend, 10, 15 minutes. Tell me what you're, what you do right now. Like, tell me what your system is, what you're teaching, what your goals are, you know, what your aim points are for, you know, technically on this tackle. Give me all the details of what you currently do. Cause we have a, a really built out system uh, that we could use. But again, like you don't, you're not just going to 
stop what you've been doing for 20 years. It's, it's probably the unrealistic nature and just copy and paste in what, what I believe or what we do or what, Hey, my mentor, Richie Gray says, this is how you do it. So you have to massage a little bit. It's tell me what you do. And then the next thing I do actually is when I'm doing for the, and I tell them for, Hey, for the rest of the day, I'm going to try my best to put everything in your terminology. Like, so when we talk and I try to outline the system and the things that we do, I'm actually going to try to put it in your terminology. I'm going to make some mistakes because I just spent 15 minutes learning it and I've never heard it before. But like, that's how committed I am to us speaking the same language. So that when we're teaching something, I'm saying, hey, this is level two for us, for you. You know, that's going to be dog tackles. When you're working a dog tackle, that's our level two. We're trying to reach the same goals. Boom, boom, boom. You teach this. Here's a couple of things that we do. Maybe some technical points that we think might make a difference. Or, you know, tell me what your uh, off-season prep looks like. How are you preparing for contact? Okay. Like, so is there anything? Is there nothing? Is there, you know, some strong man stuff? Tell me what you guys do. And I want to know that first so I can try to put it in your language and then help speed the conversation up. One, I think it just shows a bit of a humbleness to you're committed. If, if I'm trying to put it in your language, like, you know, I'm committed to trying to help you. And it's not about like our system going forward and being the champion thing that gets a new news report on, on ESPN that's changed everything. It's like, we're, I'm, this and it's going to be different everywhere because we're I could give the same information to three different teams, but they're going to all call it something different. It morphs and changes, but it's about what are the best practices and what's the best information and how can we do that to best help you. And then your guys are going to take stuff and part of it and they're going to incorporate it. But you also have to be aware, I think, that like it's those incremental gains, it's slow change. If you walk out of a meeting and you're upset because like you know, some big time person didn't it just swap over everything you've done, everything they've ever done because you had the answer and it was awesome. Like you're going to be disappointed a lot in life. You know, you're, it's the little wins of each tweak and each change along the way that you think maybe goes towards a better end goal or more towards best practices. Like that's a positive step for the athletes that are under their care. So it may not be perfect, but is it better than when you came in? Awesome, man. You just, you, you, you've done good work today. And then hopefully those conversations continue, those relationships continue, and we can keep finding things to make it better for the actual athlete. Cause for me, that's the end user and that's the end goal. The coach is always the delivery mechanism, but like the, the goal is, are we providing the best experience for the athletes and in, in football and in really probably in all sports, S and C, you know, the delivery mechanism for that experience is the coach. And we say this a lot at the youth level for right or wrong, good or bad. The youngsters experience is probably going to be dictated by the coach, you know, whether, so whatever environment they create, whatever their teaching style is, whatever environment they, they have the kids interact with, that's the kid's experience. And we have to be aware of that. And so you're, I'll steal this from uh, the U S special forces. My brother happens to be a, a green beret. So again, highly influenced there, but by, with, and through like we're working by, with, and through the coaches, which is the motto of the green berets as guerrilla warfare specialists. They work by, with, and through the host country's military or the, you know, the host country's guerrilla forces. So, okay. As an educational lead at a national governing body, I work by, with, and through the coaches that are out there with the kids every day. Yeah. And that, it's very important, like the stuff that you're mentioning here, because the, for many of these coaches to make it to the level that they're at, they, they've had some sort of success in their life. Um, so they have something to stand on to 
defend themselves to say, hey, this has worked for me, so I am right. And if you try to go in there and fight their ego with your ego, it is never going to work. And it is, it's almost like the process of convincing them that this was their idea or that they came up with this. So you almost feed their ego a little bit to, like you said, you, your goal is to better the player's experience and going about that in any way. It's almost like keeping the goal of the goal again. A hundred percent. If, if you, as any coach, any practitioner, if your goal is ultimately the athlete's experience and you'll say you're committed to it a hundred percent, you'll do whatever and you'll learn from everyone. Then the question becomes, well, how committed are you really? Like, are you, are you committed to it enough that you'll, you'll take a step back and work around and through and, and manipulate and, and do these things so that the end goal is the best possible experience. But again, the end, keeping the goal, the goal, gets very difficult sometimes when when ego or emotion or frustration gets in the way and again i'm older and more mature now i've been doing this for a while it wasn't always that smooth in the in the beginning but yeah you you start to learn that like okay it's it's how do i win you know what i mean like if i'm so smart then how do i win and so you 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 do what you do and you build relationships and you have conversations to allow these best practices to come forth or for minds to be changed. And then it also like, it takes time. And we've all seen great presentations where you walk, you walk out and you're like, man, I'm going to change this. I'm going to be better. But you know, you said like these guys have been successful a hundred percent, but just cause I start my presentation off with some great uh, story about like survivor bias doesn't mean that they're all going to be like, oh, shoot, you know what? All that stuff I was doing is just survivor bias and it's wrong. Like you plant the seed and then you got to be you got to be the farmer, meaning you got to be patient enough to let that sucker grow and to reap the harvest. And that may take months and in some cases years. And so I think patience and is ultimately what is probably a lot of people's undoing instead of, of the, the frustration that it's not changing now, instead of being like, you know what, actually, I'm just stubborn enough and committed enough that like, I'm going to water this sucker and give it the sunshine it needs and, and we'll let it grow. And, and at some point we'll reap it, but it might not be day one. It's probably not going to be year one. And, you know, cause you have to earn their trust as well. So until they start to see the stuff that we're changing, working, like they're not, going to be as keen to keep making adjustments when the stuff you do works or when you, you know, you hear the guys using some of your terminology, like those are the little wins along the ladder that you're like, okay, they're finding this useful. They're finding it helpful. Like that's building my credibility as a trusted source of information. That means we have maybe more opportunity next year to continue to make some more tweaks. Yeah. And at the, like you, you mentioned there at the end of the day, you have to have a good product or you have to have a good technique or something yeah. for, for, for it to work. You know, like you can't just be spreading all this stuff if it's not at the end of the day working, cause you're never going to foster that seed that you planted. One thing I had a question with is how do you balance almost then standing your ground versus bending in communication with the, uh, the coaches? Is it all like you, I just, I'm wondering there, to where you keep your integrity and what you actually want to get across versus kind of blending it into what they're doing. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's going to be moments of challenge. Uh, you know, I don't know where I first heard this, but the idea of like kind of that crucial conflict, you know what I mean? Like those moments. And I, I, I try, I'm a very, again, I'm a very player centered coach. So I try to be like a coach centered educator in a lot of ways to, to challenge them to, to do some research and to learn. So like a question I'll find myself at asking, uh, is, is that really true? 
you know, so like you're having this conversation and someone's like saying something and you're like, well, is that really true? Like be like, look, I've heard that too. You know, we've all heard that, but like, how confident are we? That's, that's, you know what I mean? Truth. Like, are there, are there studies? Are there things we can read? Are there other coaches having success differently? Like, you know, so if it's a technique, maybe you're like, well, you know, are other people having success with different techniques? Okay. There are. So like, there's definitely multiple ways to roam. Like, uh, you know, have we tried looking at or exploring or digging into those techniques and seeing like what's useful there, or maybe why they're successful? Cause maybe there's a misunderstanding in what they're doing and what we think they're doing and how they're applying it. If it's a, a sports science-y kind of deal, again, same thing, like, well, is that really true? Like what practitioners are using this? Or is it what research is backing both sides of it? And the other thing is I, try to read a ton, uh, like probably most of us, I'm a believer that you can't be an expert if you don't know the other side of the argument incredibly well. So like you, you know, being like, well, I'm an expert in thing X and I know everything there is about, you know, thing Y. Okay. Well, what's the adverse of Y? What are the people that do the exact opposite of Y? Why do they believe it so strongly? And are you the person that can only push kind of one side of the agenda even if your goal is ultimately to only push one side of the agenda, if you don't know why other people believe it, if you don't know what the conflicting research says, if you don't know the complete opposite side of the spectrum, are you an expert in that topic? Are you an expert in like your solution to the problem? And my goal is always, you, let's try to be a, an expert in the topic. And that'll help you a lot of times, I believe navigate some of those things because you can anticipate some of the questions you can anticipate some of the beliefs that are probably uh uh held by the other side and shoot it sounds like i'm giving a, a political spiel right now but it's like it's you know it's the same thing in snc and in football with people who have such strong beliefs about being one way to do things it's okay well what's the other side if you're not reading those arguments you know what i mean then how can you really understand and, and are you fully prepared to maybe have a quality discussion that uh, that shows people why they could think differently or where they could think differently? Or are you banging your head against the drum, you know, using the same like it's bilateral versus unilateral arguments like, you know, you're smashing back and forth. The, you know, the guys we see on the Internet or whatnot. And it's like, OK, well let's really evaluate why other people believe those. And then can what are other ways to address those? Uh, blah, 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 blah. And then try to build a deeper structure of thinking around the totality of the argument. Yeah. So we had a, we actually had a whole podcast on that with a young strength coach, um, Carter Schmitz, where his whole, his whole theory with everything that he does is the, the gray area. So he has the black, he has the white and trying to mold those two into not the, the peak of what could become between those yep. two arguments and not just trying to stay at the bottom of that pyramid because you want to win your side, you want, you want to win the black side, you want to win the white side of the argument. And I, so that, that's awesome. I love that you brought that up. Can you dive into now a little bit of the grappling in sport? Um, kind of maybe explain what it is. I, I think a lot of listeners is going to be a little bit new. I know with a lot of my athletes, when I tell them to do some of this stuff, they're like, what are we wrestling? Like what's going on here? Yeah. You kind of dive into how adding these movements is going to help our athletes kind of the overarching theory of why we're doing this and what it is. Yeah. So we deliberately use the term grappling, uh, here at USA football, uh, to just kind of encompass all these body to body contacts that are really a fight for 
positions or postures. And so it could be, you know, stolen from wrestling or judo. And some of the stuff we do doesn't look like any kind of sport. You know, you're just creating these situations, but people you're fighting with another human being for positions, for postures, for spaces. And that to me is one of the fundamental acts that happens on a, a in a sporting environment uh, in team sports, particularly. So it takes huge different um, uh, uh, it comes out in different ways, like in football and in rugby, obviously you see these huge physical battles for space and, and all that kind of stuff and postures and boom, boom, boom. But basketball players block out. Soccer players are shielding each other from a loose ball or trying to hold possession in the box. <laughs> Uh, you know, hockey and the battles in corners and you can just go on and on. So every sport has some of these just to a different extent. And so what we're trying to do is kind of work on that GPP, SP, you know, like SPE, SPDE, like development is how can we prepare athletes the best way possible for these physical contact battles that are going to happen with within their sport. And I think that there's room personally, within the strength and conditioning work to address some of these some of these topics. And I think by keeping them general in nature, and that's what kind of why we use the grappling term, we're not trying to mimic the sport skill itself. Now, the, obviously, the closer we can get, the better. But we also know that like there's not there's some sport coaches that wouldn't be thrilled if their SNCs are teaching like, you know, the fundamental mechanics of, of defeating a block or pass rush. Right. You're a, d- a defensive line guy like but they would love if their guys were more comfortable in those hand to hand combat or close body to body situations. Uh, you know, we could do the same thing. Our basketball coaches probably don't want our strength coaches teaching how to box out, but if their players are more comfortable with rooting their feet in the ground, how changing their center of gravity affects, you know, how they can stand strong or how I can deform someone else's posture to, in order to get around or defeat a box out. Well, that's a useful general skill that now the sport coach can apply the technical details to. And then the two other kind of branch off areas that I think it's incredibly important is for our advanced performers, contact is a physiological stimulus. And so we have to ask, you know, what are we doing in the off season to prepare the athletes for the physical stimulus is that they're going to experience, you know, when preseason camp starts. So how are we helping to prepare them for preseason camp? Yes, it's, bigger, stronger, faster, but, you know, we use terms like hamstring resiliency now and, and sprinting exposure and all that kind of stuff. Well, what about the contact aspect for, so our contact sport athletes comfortable and used to this. And then on the youth level, uh, it started with a, a program we call prep for contact, uh, which is slightly different than the prep for contact that we've done at the advanced levels. And it's really about taking youngsters who are new to contact sports, football, rugby, hockey, and saying, what are we doing in the years before contact is allowed via game rules to prepare them for these contact situations? And kind of the the example we always throw out is that, you know, kids in today's day and age aren't allowed in other people's personal space. Like unless you grew up in a family like mine and there's tons of kids and you're wrestling and fighting and you have enough people for your own backyard football game. Like, you know, in school, it's stay out of each other's personal space. Your mom and dad are yelling at you in the living room to stop picking on your siblings and you're not allowed these experiences. Then you go on a sporting field 
and a coach is yelling at you that like you have to be in somebody else's personal space. There's going to be contact. There's going to be resistance. There's this friction of two people fighting for, like you said, for position and posture and space. And I'm super uncomfortable there and I don't like it at all. Well, it doesn't matter what coaching cue you give uh, the hockey player or the offensive line player about like his technique. If he's uncomfortable in that battle, it's going to be a long season for both of us. So can we kind of do some gradient exposure, some stress inoculation, and we can do that through fun games-based grappling activities so that uh, youngsters just get really comfortable in that battle. And then the spaces we're asking them to apply their technique are not so foreign and it becomes an environment where they can, they can thrive in. So it kind of goes from preparing youth for technical skills. And then as we get to the more performance side, it's how do we, build the underpinning physical qualities that support their technical skills. And if contact is a physiological stimulus, are we building robust athletes that are going to be able to handle the demands of preseason to be able to get to the regular season in a healthy, good place where they can display their natural athleticism? I love a lot of that. Um, what I've been working on with my athletes is adding in this grappling stuff. And it is really cool to see, or I don't know about cool, but you'll talk about a guy that can bench 500 pounds, squat 500, you know, just just meathead in the weight room. And then they'll get up and they'll, they'll get beat by a guy that benches or squats way less than them because they're able to flow between those brace and flow states that you, you, you talk about. Um, can you, can you talk about why that is? Why is it like, what's the big difference between that in weight room strength and on the field strength or on these drill strengths and kind of break down the brace and flow states between why that's so important? Yeah. So we, one of the decisions that we talk about that athletes need to be able to make is when to brace and when to flow. So when those forces are are being uh, impacted upon us, you know, we've all seen athletes of all sports. Sometimes they just kind of root down, they plant their feet, they brace and they just swallow that force and they hold their ground. And there's a time and a place for that. And then you also see guys who do kind of that boxer shoulder roll where they turn their shoulders and hips and they allow the, the force to glance off of them. They allow the opponent to kind of slip past and they flow normally with overpressures, right? So somebody puts overpressure and I'm going to flow and, and let that, but no coach can tell you when to brace and when to flow specifically. You know, you can talk about overpressures and underpressures and opportunities to brace and take space or to, to use their force against them, but there's a keen aesthetic feel on the field that has to happen. And again, every sports athlete, you know, has to do it where you're over committing on the box out and I'm just going to slip you or you're not sitting down and your center of gravity is high and I can just root you up and push you under the hoop and steal the rebound myself. That's the same as a football player having to do it. So we have to learn when to brace, when to flow and kind of make those quality decisions. And we'll stay out of kind of the, the mindset of how those decisions happen, autonomy and all that kind of stuff. But those players make those quick choices and their body reacts to it. So we have to be able to do that. But to me, it's really experiential. Like you have to feel these things kinesthetically to understand what opportunities are there. And you probably have to be exposed to it enough and enough opportunities, enough random stimulus is that you start to identify within your own body, like when I can do what, what opportunities are there and how am I going to capitalize on it? And it's a conceptual learning to me of just brace and flow and transitioning back and forth between those within these combative frictional situations that an athlete learns. And I think to your point, 
an athlete can learn them in the off season and then start to technically apply skills with this new understanding of, Hey, I'm going to do this thing that coach taught me, but here's this huge overpressure. And this guy's out of position. Like why, why fight the hard fight when I can just flow and slip it? And, you know, you talk about the bigger, stronger athletes versus the, uh, the other athletes and who wins yeah, because I think it's, you know, hundred percent, the, our power lifts or our, our pure strength lifts are known commodities and we know we're going to brace and set up. And that sometimes the decision-making if I don't know when to brace or when to flow and when to change between those is what gets people out of position. And so once you're out of position, you know, your posture really broke down and all those things, it doesn't matter maybe how strong you are. Yeah. There are some, some freaks who can get themselves out of bad positions. Right. But, but we can take advantage of you leaking force into the ether and not putting it into me because your spine is and hips aren't anywhere near where they should be. So Again, that huge, big, strong 500, 500 athlete you, you told me about, like if you told them like, hey, this is going to be a bull rush, like they'd probably be able to set for it and utilize that strength and be awesome when they have to set for the bull rush, then adjust for the push pull and then get back and brace again. If their transitions aren't natural and they're not feeling it, they're a step behind in the OODA loop. They're uh, play always playing catch up. They're out of position, whatever you want to attribute it to, and they lose the play. Um, so something we I talk about even within the sport itself is, you know, a good coach has to look between kind of uh, a schematic air, a decision making air, and a technique air. And I think for this. For the strength and conditioning coach, there are some similar things where is this a physical limitation or is this like that decision making application limitation? And so uh, an athlete with huge amounts of strength may clearly have the physical abilities to do it. But if they're struggling to keep up with the different OODA loops and adapt and react and brace and flow, then it becomes an application error. And the way to fix that to me is you have to give them enough experiences at it that they start to learn to solve the problems. And then more importantly, understand internally, conceptually how to solve different problems so that they're able to keep up with what happens on the field. The, the game is chaotic. I think a lot of you know, coaches say that now and we embrace that. Uh, one of the things that I like to say is that it's it's disrespectful to the opponent. It's probably even disrespectful to the game itself. If you don't realize that your opponent is going to do everything in their power to put you in bad positions, to put you under stress, to challenge your decision making, to challenge your technical application, like whether it's a high school team or a college team, like that guy's on scholarship too. That guy's starting for a reason. You might think that that town doesn't have a very good football team, but in the squiggly lines that make up that high school school district, that's the best kid that lives in, in that neighborhood, right? That's why he's on the field. So he's going to challenge you. And we have to appreciate that and prepare for that instead of maybe always like that perfect technical model preparation. Yeah. And the, the way I relate it a little bit is in the strength conditioning world, we would always, and if we're doing it the right way, but progress a squat, let's say from a body weight squat to a goblet squat, to a front squat, to like a barbell squat. And we, we'd have a progression, natural progression. And when we get to sport, it's, we do nothing. And then we do full sport, or maybe we do nothing. Some like some technical little side drill, and then we throw them into the full game of sport. And there's no built, like you said, the, the underpinnings, there's no foundational skill set there for them to grab upon and it's either they have it or they don't or they're they're getting it in their sport or they're not well i i think it's i'll be honest this is kind of so we started launching this program as part of what we call our football development model which is a, a long-term athlete development program so the 
long story, US OPC asked all the governing bodies to follow the American development model and create their LTAD kind of pathways. And as we started doing it, prep for contact became really important to us. And at the same time, you started to see in the strength and conditioning world, the rise of, you know, the open environment, agility kind of reactive stuff. And how are we bridging the gap between our closed chain change of direction drills and what the athletes are going to have to do in preseason on the field. And with that happening, it was kind of a great time to say like, that is a great progression that we all understand. I loved your analogy of the squat. So we have this change of direction to open environment, to game environment, agility progression. Well, what are we doing about the contact skills? It's lifting weights, throwing medicine balls, running into another 300 pound person at full speed. Like, so there has to be a bridge in there somewhere, I would hope. And so hopefully we just capitalize on a good time and people like thought, Hey, this is kind of cool. Maybe we should listen and try some of it. Like, who would you say this is, this is falling upon then? I guess it overall, it's the, the connection, hopefully of all coaches, but are you, would you push for strength conditioning coaches to include this more in their training as we bridge? Or is this something when let's say individual time, we can do more of this and progress it that way? Like what, what would be your way to bridge that gap? Yeah. I think in the perfect world, it's both, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Where we're, uh, you know, we're trying to blur those lines. We want the smooth transitions. Um, uh, I commented, I think the other day on a, on a social media post that, you know, if we go back to the agility thing, as an example, the week before preseason camp starts, we'll say, our players who are working with our strength coaches are probably to the point in their training that they're doing these super high level open reactive agility. You know, they're through the off season progression. They're doing this like high level peaking performance stuff, right? Then you get to the first week of preseason camp, you go to individual, you've been there, you're a football guy. What is the position specific uh, kind of change of direction agility looks like, you know, it's running through some bags. It's kind of the coach's point and you're doing some shuffling and you're thinking this is honestly a step back developmentally from what they were doing just a week ago. They were doing, you know what I mean? They were doing these awesome open agility drills. You know, uh, you, you know, you've had the guys from Elon on, you know, you know, you know, Kier, you're seeing all this awesome work. And then your first day of practice is left, right. Shuffle, shuffle. Like that's, they're, they're probably beyond that drill to be, to be hundred percent honest. And if we integrated the S and C and the, in the sport coaching more, we might have a full progression that went from off season into when the coach takes over and then they're programming some of that continued development. So I'd love to see the same thing with the contact skills. So where the strength coach is doing these generalized grappling training to build some physical resiliency and conceptual learning about spaces, forces, frictions over under pressures, brace and flow. And then it continues where maybe early in the training block with the sport coaches, they're doing some of these same drills to get the players into these physical combatives, but they're starting to layer in more of the technical detail. So we go from the general And then we bring some of the general over and we slowly start adding the technical detail that makes it more sport and or position specific as we kind of come out the other side. The other thing is I do encourage sport coaches to use these drills, particularly with um, football and rugby athletes under that prep for contact model as well, where like our general warmups are normally very much, uh, movement based, you know, locomotion, and we're going to do some shuffling and some backpedaling. And then it's like, all right, cool. Like go tackle this 240 pound running back. And you're like, 
well, like, you know, my, my core, my shoulders, my brace and flow are the other systems of my body, like properly warmed up for this. So I think some of this grappling stuff serves as a great late stage warm up to get us ready for uh, the contact that we're going to do in practice. And so I think that's where some of that crossover can happen, where either it's the strength and conditioning coach at a late stage warm up, or it's the position coach normally in that individual early developmental time doing some of this stuff to get the body ready for what we're going to ask it to do in our more, uh, more advanced, higher level drills later in practice. I, I love that. Uh, my question that popped up there is, and this might be splitting the wrong terminology and how you do it, but uh, thinking it in terms of contact versus collision and, uh, and contact of being the grappling drills where we're touching, we're doing pass rush, we're doing this type of stuff versus the collision type drills where we're actually tackling, we're actually having to yeah. cut tackle, like full through. What's kind of the, the difference there in how you format your drills and go about that process of contact versus collision, or maybe you have different terminology for that? Yeah, so I actually look at it and I will consider our pre-engaged stuff, mostly our contact work. So again, like you can start an offensive and defensive lineman pre-engaged so that there is no quote collision. It's, we call these our, our high force, low impact drills, where we can still have a complete full strength, full power battle but if we're starting, you know, hands on each other or shoulders on each other, we're not having that coll collision of, of uh, being able to accelerate through time and space. Then kind of our collision drills are when we start to add the space to it. Um, and so now we're exploding kind of into contact. Uh, it's a lot more. And here's where the, the S&C side comes into it. Um, it's a lot more low load, high velocity power. Uh, versus the contact stuff. So the way I look at it is if I'm going to make a block or a tackle or a block defeat, I actually start my acceleration. You know, I explode my hips and my hands and all that stuff before I'm engaged with the opponent. So I'm generating huge amounts of force via speed because I'm unengaged. Then I'm striking you at some point and I'm taking on this massive resistance, but I've already generated low load, high velocity force, probably more similar to a med ball throw or a jump only halfway through a 300 pound person is going to hit me and try to stop me. Once I'm engaged and that weight is on me, I'm probably working something that's more akin to maybe an Olympic lift where I'm now high load, uh, lower velocity because this 300 pound person is engaged with me. And now I have to generate power to get rid of them. And so there's kind of those two forces that are, that are at play and, the low load, high velocity force is what's going to happen right before collision. And to me, the way I explain it, where I'm dipping those hips, I'm exploding out, I'm coming through just my body weight. I'm trying to move it as fast as I can to generate as much force as I can, and then take that impulse force through the, through the opponent. That obviously has some more that that is what we consider collision. And so when we're working on, you know, trying to limit the total exposures in our collision sports for safety reasons, one of the things we can do is we can remove that collision. We can start pre-engage and let us still work at full force and maybe what we'll call full muscular strain, but without that ridiculous speed that's happening when the player's loading and exploding 
again, unresisted into resistance, because as we can all imagine, the, you know, the forces and the speeds that the, uh, these high level athletes can create in that kind of second before contact when they drop and pop and do all is is huge. So we're removing those, but we're going to still have the battle. And then both sports, everyone wants to win the collision. Right. And it's a goal of football. It's a goal of rugby and the tackle, the breakdown. But again, if we respect the opponents, we also know that we're not always going to win collision. So that grapple and that battle becomes in a tool every player has to have. Because what happens when you don't win collision? Like you can't just give up on the play. You have to try to win it back. And that's where that reshaping, that refighting, that repositioning allows you to maybe get back into posture, break down the opponent's posture and and win the play. I mean, think about it for yourself on a pass rush. Like if you won every initial engagement, like you just bull rush everybody, but yep. guys are going to sit down on you and stop you. And all of a sudden you have counter moves and you have to reestablish. And so that's where I think the, uh, the grapple stuff and the pre-engaged stuff helps players. And then we have to do some sort of collision work because again, it's a stimulus to game demands. Uh, we have to have a good technical eye for safety. We want to make sure we, you know, limit the exposures to what is needed to create a robust athlete, not what's going to create a detrimental effect. And then we'll, we'll work back and forth on this spectrum and these velocities based on maybe the point of the season, what the team needs or where we feel like we are from a, an energy standpoint. Yeah. And really trying to give the athlete all the, and how I put it is that give them all the tools for them to be able to draw upon and use. So it's, it's, it's almost automatic for them to, Oh, that didn't work. I have a plan B. I have another tool that I can use for this. Oh, that tool yeah. is not working. I can have another tool rather than bull rush. Like that's my hammer. I'm trying to hammer through a saw, like a piece of wood. Like it's, it's not going to work. Yeah. It's, you know, it's the, like the question I guess is, well, what do you do when you get stuck? Like, Oh shoot. Like, well, the coach says, if I just do it like this, it's supposed to work. Like, okay, well, Yes, I would like you to do it like that as well. But when it does, what do you do when you get stuck? And that's where you get into those those grapple aspects where you're you're just physically trying to move another human being. You know, I do think there are some some things we can take from judo wrestling jujitsu, like where if if I'm stuck and you're in this great posture and you're just standing there strong, before I can even move you, I can try overcoming force. Or I can try to break your posture down to a position where you're exerting less force and then it's easier to move you. And if I have some tools to do that, then my life gets gets much easier. And again, it happens so fast on the field that to me, those reactions need to be automated. And the only way that happens is through exposures and training that we start to, to feel those things. And then we've talked about this offline. It's so much kinesthetic that when you're engaged or when someone's engaged with you in any one of our sports, you don't have a lot of visual cues because it's like your spaces are right here. So can I feel th these things kinesthetically to be able to react to them? And I think it's one of the challenges we have in the off season where, you know, it's like we say, Hey, you can say in the college environment, you can only work with the strength coaches. So you're quote, not supposed to do sports specific tasks. And, you know, you're not allowed to have a, a ball out there on the field because then it's considered a sports specific practice. But I do all these visual stimuluses. Then on the field, I have to read these kinesthetic stimuluses. And if I've just had a three month training block, or maybe a two month training block, an eight week training block where I've had no kinesthetic feel and learning development, then that transition is going to be really hard. If I'm developing again, the underpinning aspects of feel, uh, kinesthetic sense, overpressure, under pressure, brace flow, then 
I'm de- I'm developing in the off season some things that traditionally were considered very specific to the sport. Again, there's always going to be a limit in what we can recreate because of those rules around training and how sport or position specific we can make it. But I believe that that those general means do contribute to some great conceptual learning. Yeah, and I, I love that. Um, trying to have creative athletes on the field. What, what I'm drawing this back to is anytime you saw an athlete that really wasn't making it or just didn't move natural on the field or flow and you, you knew they had the outputs, they had the potential to do that, but they were thinking like they're very cue based athletes. They were trying to think of what the coach was saying. They were trying to think of doing this stuff rather than feel on the yeah. field. So trying to, trying to create fuel, feel based athletes and creative athletes on the field through all of the drills that were given them. I, and I couldn't agree more with that, especially in the sport of football. I think because football is so martial in nature, you know, coaches call the plays and the plays are so short, we tend to overlook that. And then you think like in reality, the number of decisions and creative opportunities that happen in those six seconds is like mind boggling. You know what I mean? So the players have to be so quick and automatic with those things. And I'm, I'm a big creative guy. And that's where I, I come back to some, some of that player centered coaching stuff. And you, you mentioned the guys that are so cue driven that it's like some of the guys can't solve their or gals, I guess in today's age, can't solve their own problems. You know, they're like looking to the coach, like for, you know, what in the heck happened? What do, I, what do I do when he does that? And so I'm a big question-based guy, you know, so if like a, a player loses one of our grapple drills, you know what I mean? My first thing is I'm going to ask like, you know, what did you see? What did you feel? What did you try to do? You know what I mean? Like what went wrong? What could we have done better? Because I want them to be able to sort it out in their own mind so that we have a chance to solve it on the field instead of having to wait till they get to the sideline or you get your, you know, the crazy coach trying to yell the fix and over the crowd and the band and hear all these noises. It's like, Oh, you know, I got my hips out of position. I lost posture. Like, you know what I mean? Like, or one of those little things that they can start to feel and understand. So I'm always going to ask a ton of questions and try to get them to sort the answer out in their own, in their own body, in their own head before like I give them kind of the coach's answer so that hopefully they're, they're self-solving. And if they've never given the opportunity to try to explore it personally, then sometimes they become slaves to the coach's correction and they don't become as able to solve problems with their, their own means. And yeah, I know we love do your own job and there's a place for the, the trained pit bull, but you, you also need a, you know, some guys that are going to go out there and be able to grab opportunities that, that just manifest themselves on the field. And that's going to be either through feel or through, okay, I did this twice. This guy did this to me. He won those plays. I need to make an adjustment in here somewhere. Do I, can I feel what that is or, or am I just throwing darts in the dark? Yeah. Uh, and I, my favorite part about all of this is it coaches love the athletes that listen to every single cue and thing that they give because they're easy to work with. Uh, but mm-hmm. they, they love them until it's game day when they rely upon an athlete that does things just in quotations wrong enough to be good. You know, yeah. they're doing the, they're doing something just a little bit different than, cause if you listen to that cue, you listen to that step, you listen to, like you said, that hand placement and the best athletes I've ever seen, the best athletes I've ever played with are guys that, again, in quotations are doing things wrong, but it's working. Like they're able to solve the problem that is in front of them, not solve try the to problem, produce brother. the What well, it's interesting too, because you look at it from the strength and conditioning side, I think there's some similar things to just understanding the body where we'll say, you know, I don't know, a squat or a clean or somebody does a rep that we, we would all judge to be pretty poor. And it's like, 
as long as it's not dangerous, we'll, we'll throw that one out there. But it's like, how many times have you, you know, you asked the guy like, Hey, what went wrong? You know what I mean? Like, did they feel that like they got, you know, they lost the bar path or they got too far forward or they got too far back, whatever it was like, did they, did they feel it? And now we can talk about the different modes of learning or whatever. And maybe they didn't feel it because they're not very competent yet, but do we at least give them the opportunity to say like, Hey, what happened on that one? Hey, what did you, did you feel that? You know what I mean? Like to let him say, Hey, like, yeah, I, I really got far forward. Uh, like my hips came up first. That's why it was like the squat looked terrible. Okay, great. Like, you know what you did now let's, we can like start to work to sort it out instead of like, we want to control everything. And it's, there's a fine line. I'm not saying one is right or wrong. There's a time and a place for both, but if we can promote an athlete that's feeling their body and can self-correct, I think that that has great transfer to their sporting skills and their on field activities. Again, as long as like we're in a safe environment, you know what I mean? Like I'm probably not going to do that in as a high load type situation, but maybe after the, the bars rack, the spotter saved them. We're, we're talking about what happened here. We can take that little, we call micro debriefs, like that little 30 second debrief. Hey, what did you feel? What, you know what I mean? Or maybe in a sports situation, what did you see? Like, what did you try to do? Like what happened? What could you have done better? Like, how do you, how do you do that? Okay, cool. So you asked those four simple questions and all of a sudden the players are thinking, okay, yeah, I felt my hips come up first. I need to have do this. I need to sit. Okay, perfect. I know what I need to do. Now the test becomes the next rep. Can they, can they put it into practice? But I'd rather have them come up with the solution than me come up with the solution. And if they can't come up with the solution because they're at that sort of level of learning, great. It's still worthwhile to go through that micro debriefing for me to know that information and then give them the cues and I'll try it again. Well, I think that's really important too, especially in the strength conditioning and especially the football world where you, you have a hundred athletes and you're trying to coach everyone. I'm like, and I tell my, I debrief my athletes right away. I was like, Hey, there's a hundred of you. There's one of me. We need to be able to, my, my process is to self-correct and be able to work on it because I'm not going to see every single rep every single time. Yeah. So, uh, and again, me solving your problems or me telling you a cue isn't going to be best. Like that's not what's going to happen on the field anyways. So in our heads, we need to be able to create this process of self-correcting and figuring out and feeling what we did and how we went about that. So it transitions to the field and we're getting solid, solid reps in the weight room or on the field or whatever we're doing that day. No, hundred percent. I, you know, there was times as an athlete, no one likes the old athlete stories, but where I was like truly lost. And I remember like going up to a coach and saying like, all right, I'm trying to do this new thing, or I'm in this new position. Like what's X, Y, Z I'm not feeling. It. And there's a time where as a player, I knew I needed help, but there's also times as a player where it's like, you did something wrong. And then you're sitting there and you're going, Oh shoot. You know, the coach is coming with like, you're like, look, everybody on the field knows that like, I missed the punch with my left hand and I was completely off target and I let the guy get into my, my, my chest. Like we both, I knew that I missed that shot because at that point I was well enough into that development that like you could feel your hand placement or something on a block defeat. And you're like, Oh, here it comes. I'm going to, you know what I mean? Like I knew exact. And so it just becomes like this negative feedback loop where you're like, let me fix it. I got it. You know what I mean? So, uh, you gotta, you gotta be able to play both sides of the coin. I'm not saying it's, it's always that way, but it's again, just like for the players, it's a tool in your toolbox and it's a useful tool for, for different situations. And then 
I just think across all things, that exploration of your body and movement and space. And I talk a lot about postures and being able to feel your postures in these grappling drills. And when are your hips and spine not in position? It just has a lot of general athletic development carry over to the field. And then even in the weight room, you'd hope that a player who has really good feel for that, like is always going to catch a bar in a good position, or he's always going to land on a box in a good position or, or whatever it is that you, you do. Like we just were developing some of that general coordination, spatial awareness, kinesthetic awareness. Uh, I mean, who doesn't want a guy that has or gal that has more of that? Yeah. And you hit the base and you can transition it to the field. The very hopefully. last. <laughs> yeah, hopefully the, the very last sports performance question I got is what has been kind of your <laughs> biggest eye opener to your training recently that maybe it was last three months, maybe it was last month, maybe it was today that you're like, this is something that I think we can push forward and change the game. Yeah. So, uh, so I was work with Keir kind of on, on a, a webinar I did for the, uh, for his site and on the grapple based conditioning stuff for our contact sport athletes. You know, I think if you, if you look at the literature and again, there's a ton more literature on, on rugby than there is on American football, just the nature of the beast, uh, repeat high intensity efforts and that like, you know, these, these combative situations aren't necessarily, uh, sprints, you know, they may not be dominated by your VO two max and your, you know, your repeat sprint test recoverability and all that kind of stuff. But are you able to repeat these high intensity efforts? And you look at certain positions on the field, uh, that's going to be the majority of the work that they do, especially our offensive and defensive linemen. So how are we incorporating some of these grappling and repeat high intensity efforts to our conditioning means? And so, you know, we've done stuff with like, you know, doing our tempo runs. And then instead of traditionally doing your calisthenics, you know, we may throw in, we may do some grappling uh, in between our, our next run to try to develop that, or even doing extensive grappling circuits one day a week for the, our bigger players. One, it, uh, uh, it's probably good for their joints, you know, to their, their game day meterage or yardage isn't as much as the, uh, the skill players. So do they need say all three days of running or can we give them a day of grappling to, uh, develop kind of that robust, maybe muscular endurance, a little more localized, repeat high intensity effort stuff. And we did that a lot when I was a rugby player. And, you know, I always wondered what it would look like at, uh, in an American football model. And then through some of the, some of the guys we've recently made connections with some of the guys you've had on the podcast, uh, you're starting to see guys play with it and do some stuff with it. And I'm really excited to kind of see where that goes over the, maybe the next two off seasons with play coaches using more grapple based conditioning. Uh, as long as it's high quality, you know, in the demands of the game, not like getting these crazy, you know, uh, uh, sessions where we're just trying to grapple guys until they throw up because it's going to make them tough. But there's some really high quality coaches embracing this idea. And I think we maybe we'll see uh, a really cool trend over the next couple of years and how big guys are, are better conditioned for the demands of the game. No, I, that that's awesome. Um, the way I break down conditioning and I think it's a little bit different, but through James Smith, he talks about conditioning needs to be done in the actions that you're doing and on mm -hmm. the field, you're grappling, you're running, doing all these things. And a lot of times we just focus on the running, which I think is important. It's one of the main skill sets of what we do on this field. And then reading some of the other stuff is a lot of feeling tired and a lot of 
feeling gas is the psychological expenditure of knowing to play, knowing to stress, knowing these things. And then how do we combine those two? And how can we, like, I asked my athletes, like when you're getting tired, like what makes you tired on the field? A lot of times it is the grappling and the fights. And a lot of times it is, oh, I forgot to play or something like that. And then I start to freak out and I use a lot of energy that isn't necessary. So trying to combine these things. So we do a lot of stuff like the extensive grappling drills that continue to do that. We do some tempo runs in there. And then we do a lot of a game-based stuff as well, trying to yeah put them in that stressful situations. And all we do is we just put it at a longer tempo or a longer time. And now they're grappling, they're fighting for something and they're running. And then they're under that psychological stress of win or loss and coaches watching players watching. I, I think that's absolutely awesome. And it's you're you're spot on too. When you talk about the knowing the wrong play and then expending a lot of, of energy, uh, just the efficiency, right? Like you, when you're more efficient, you're, you seem like you're in better shape just because you're not expending useless energy. So guys that are efficient in their positioning, their skills, you know, they're the grappling battles, you know, maybe, uh, uh, saving some of those energy, energy reserves, but yeah, I love the game based stuff and the winner loss based stuff. Cause you're adding psychological stress. Um, you know, that, that exposure, that's so important. I, uh, Dr. Eric Coram talked about the the first game conundrum, I believe he called it, where, you know, first quarter of the first game of the season, guys are gassed because it's the stresses and the output level is so much different on game day than it is in practice, no matter how much we want to say, like we have high intensity practices, but how are we mimicking some of those stressors in our training or in our practices? is another cool area. I think that I'm seeing a lot of guys talk about, and I, I can't wait to track over the next couple of years. Yeah, I know uh, Sean Mishko was talking about at one of the movement meetups, uh, bringing in stressful people for them at practice. He was talking, I think it was a quarterback he was working with of there were certain games where he stressed and they broke down why were the certain games that stressed. And it was actually that his parents were at those games. And when his parents were there, it was a higher stress situation. So then he started to bring his parents into the practice. So Hilarious. then they were working with these type of things. Well, I always go back. I tell this story that, uh, the uh, bad music day where there were days where they would deliberately play like the worst music in the weight room that all the kids hated. And what's amazing is players would have terrible lifts. Players would not be able to stop complaining. Like you could see them struggling to focus on training because like Disney pop princess music is playing 24 seven. And then all of a sudden it's like, well, part of your mental skills is the ability to block out distractions and focus on the task at hand. Like the weight room could be silent. The weight room could have Christmas carols in the middle of summer. The weight room could have your favorite music on. But like, if you let that affect you to the point that you are struggling to have a bad lift and can't focus, because all you're doing is complaining, like how good are we at blocking out these stimuluses? And it was a lesson that, that I learned as a player when the coaches did it. And you always go, man, like, holy cow, I'm a mental weakling. Like I let that bother me. And that's all I could think about for the, you know, for the hour was this music is terrible. I didn't once like really dig into that same mindset of where I would be like trying to trying to focus on this lift or my body position or my setup. And so it's amazing what can distract people. Uh, <laughs> I just think we should probably never, never limit, especially with our high school and college athletes, when you're working with 14 to the 22 year olds, <laughs> never second guess what could potentially be a distractor. Cause it's amazing. Yeah. Uh, that was actually, so with this whole virus going around and how they were going to play the games with no fans. That was one of the biggest things I was honestly looking into of how are these players going to react now? Cause 
that uh, I don't think people were taking it. And at least in my, the circles that I were like, I don't think people were taking it seriously enough of these players are going to be playing with a totally different stimulus now. Oh yeah. It's, it's like when you do a, a webinar, you know, a live presentation, you don't, you don't realize how much visual cues you're picking up from the audience until you have to do a webinar where you're just talking to a camera and you like say a great joke and, well, you don't know if anyone laughed because there's nobody on the other end and you don't see people nodding their head or, you know, I always notice people are taking notes down and you're like, ah, oh, that point landed. You know what I mean? Like I can go on guys clearly got what I was trying to say, or you see the puzzled looks and you may stop and elaborate on some things. So it wasn't until I started doing a couple of webinars that I really realized like how much the live audience helped shape the presentation, not even by like holding your hand up question, just those little little nonverbal stimuluses you pick up. And then you can only imagine like how that is multiplied to an empty stadium feel and in the game day environment and, and everything around it. It definitely would have been interesting. All right. We can transition into a rapid fire round now. The, 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 right. first question, the first question I like to ask is, uh, what are your favorite books, books that you think kind of have shaped who you are and the listeners can get a lot out of? Yeah. So, uh, I really appreciate that you said like kind of shaped who they are. Cause as I thought about this, it's definitely been different over time. Like as I've grown, different books have been hugely important in my life. Uh, and so kind of the first books that I ever remember being important, we'll, we'll say the butter battle book by Dr. Seuss as a kid, I, I loved it. And so much so that crazy story during college, I probably thought I was smarter than I was. So I once read Dr. Seuss at a poetry jam, because if the measure of art is the impact on the human soul and it's in the eye of the beholder, like who isn't made to feel good by a Dr. Seuss book. So I just got on stage and read a Dr. Seuss book. Um, in high school, uh, the catcher in the rye, like hit me super hard. You know what I mean? Like just kind of right, right place, right time, I, I guess in, in my development, uh, as an athlete, I, uh, the alchemist, uh, just was again, a book that I just gravitated to and was one of the books like I read every, every year, <laughs> the mission, the men in me by Pete Blabber is kind of a, a leadership book. It, 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 uh, has, he has had a huge impact on me. I still utilize the lessons in it today. I still quote it to this, uh, to this day. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of leadership books out there and I tell people my, my advice to anyone is, you know, everyone has a favorite book, but if you're a military history buff, like me, like read military leadership books, if you're really infatuated with the business world or the education world, like most of the books say the same message. So you might as well read it in a format that like you enjoy. So just, you don't need to read what everyone else does. If you like business, find some great business leadership books. If you're a military historian, has military in your family, like I do read military leadership, but there's some great stuff out there. But those, those three books really over probably over the past, you know, 20 years, kind of at different times, really, really hit home for me. Yeah, this is one of my favorite questions. I say this every single time on the podcast, but it's one of my favorite questions. Um, one because the Alchemist has almost always said <laughs> the oh, book is great book. The book has been number one requested on this podcast, and then two, it's almost there's very few times where it's been just straight strength conditioning books, and that's what I try to relay to my interns and other people coming up in the field. Is there, there's so many things to grab knowledge pieces from and who you are from that are going to matter a lot more than the strength conditioning sets and reps that we go over and over again. 
Yeah. I mean, it's the same thing with the the technical coaching, you know what I mean? Like I said, I'm probably more a, a sport coach than S and C guy, just kind of migrate back and forth, but it's, you could know all the stuff in the world. If you're not developed right individually, you're not going to be able to develop others. All right. So next question, and this is a question that's kind of developed our podcast and taken us down some of these rabbit holes that we've gone down, but who's a guest that you think we should have have on this podcast? I do a lot of work in the youth development space. Um, and so two guys who I've had the pleasure of working with and have had a huge impact on me are, are Dr. Joe Eisenman, uh, formerly of, of Michigan State, and Jeremy Frisch, who I, who I mentioned earlier. Just two guys, I think, that in the youth space are really pushing and doing some some great work and uh i hope it doesn't sound hokey but it's one of those people who sport gave an awesome opportunity to to go to college and to travel the world you know i want to see others get those same opportunities and so as much as i love the high performance side for me individually because it's a a great challenge and, and i enjoy that aspect keeping the lower levels strong is so important kind of to the future of what we're all going to do. And especially in some of the modern environments and modern challenges, I think uh, looking at that youth side is, is incredibly important. Those are two guys that have just, because I know them personally, have had a big influence on me. Yeah. You're seeing a lot of high level coaches now go from the working with the in quotes, goal of the professional athlete to working with the the, the kids because that, that's where you're gonna have your biggest impact and what kind of actually matters. I was I had I was having a conversation with a a gentleman uh, with, who was over at the UK Olympic Committee for a while and uh, he had said he made the same transition and the reason was because they were expecting him to ice a cake but the cake had never been baked and so he kind of went down a level to down levels to try to do some more work in the youth and help set those those foundations and that I thought that was a powerful message. Cool. So what, what's next for you? What kind of, what, maybe it's a, it's a new year goal. Maybe it's a five-year plan. Like what's kind of the next big thing for you? Yeah. So, uh, through USA football, we have our, our football development model coming out in which prep for contact is included. And so prep for contact is, is really kind of my, my core area uh, of that model. And I'm really excited to kind of, to get out the details of this program. So we've, talked a lot about it conceptually, you know, doing some webinars and podcasts, but the actual kind of frameworks to help coaches uh, implement it uh, out on the field on a fall afternoon with a bunch of kids. Uh, really, really excited about that. Uh, we also want to build it out uh, more for towards the high performance. So we're starting in the youth levels and then we'll, we'll build towards the high school and towards these high performance levels. So just kind of chasing that rabbit hole and seeing what kind of impact we can have with these this prep for contact stuff and, and getting coaches to adopt it and implement it across all levels will not be an easy task, but it'll, it'll probably be asking in five years if we were successful. Uh, and then again, just continuing to do some of these um, uh, high level kind of performance based based programs just gives me a nice dichotomy of both sides of the spectrum. And I, I'll be honest, I don't know if I would give up uh, the current role be and focus on one because I, I like being able to, to float back and forth. So continue working with some college teams, uh, continue doing some of the work in Europe and then focusing here in the States on really getting uh, that development model rolled out and 
and up and running. Cause as you know, the best program, uh, in the world, it, unless it's coached well and actually done, uh, boots on the ground, either in the weight room or on the field, uh, it just sits on a, on a, uh, collecting dust over my bookshelf. And so that's where I'll be for the next five years. When, when you're on your deathbed and, and all of this, uh, coaching stuff is gone and you get to look back on it, what, what do you kind of want your legacy to be with all of this? Yeah. I mean, the simple answer is, would, would be family. Uh, like I said, I got out of college coaching cause I had a vision of the type of father I wanted to be. I have, I have two young children. Uh, I, I, I really enjoy my family time. Um, but you know, there, there is a part of you that, that, wants to see the game continue to be strong. We know that it serves millions of kids. And so just to say that, that, you know, like someone to raise a glass and say like, that guy did some really good work for, you know, the space of, uh, youth football, youth development, strength conditioning, you know, whatever, whatever it is, but just that you had a positive contribution to changing things for the better. I think, you know, that's, that's all you can ask for is at, at this point in my career, it's beyond glitz and glamor and recognition. It's you just want to do good work. You want to have an impact. I love that. And this is the, the last question of the podcast. And probably one of my favorites is your kind of billboard message for somebody that's in a valley. So we, uh, a lot of people, they get stuck in the, the thought process that you, you are at the successful level and they don't see really that mountain it took to climb to get to where you're at. And it, it's a little bit of struggle in their head and they see where they're at and like, it can never reach that point. I'm at this low point. So what's kind of like your, your billboard message to help them to push forward, to keep going, to get after it. Yeah. For it's for me, it's, it's just kind of, you know, I, I think two things, one, again, I'll steal a military quote that like the enemy gets a vote, no plan survives first contact, do what, and then do what you can. So, uh, interesting backstory here. So I was born with a congenital birth defect in my right foot. So for those feet guys out there in the strength and conditioning world, my big toe, my great toe is actually the second smallest toe on my foot. So I roll off uh, digits two through four instead of, you know, rolling kind of through traditionally through you would through the midfoot. So when I'm toe off, I'm on digits three and four and my big toe isn't even touching the ground. So I have this crazy altered gait pattern. I've had multiple surgeries. I've had legitimately thousands of pairs of orthotics, like not exaggerating. I've probably had somewhere between 50 and a hundred different models. What I had to learn really early was that like, I was always going to have to adapt like my training, my daily life, my daily schedule. You know, there's a lot of pain management. I, maybe I didn't know any better. Maybe I was silly, but I just kept doing all the things I was doing and chasing these goals of being a college football player and being an international rugby player. And my path was never going to be the path of everyone else's. You know, I had to not do uh, on-field conditioning. Sometimes I couldn't do speed work or plyometrics. My feet just couldn't take the pounding. But there's always an alternate path, right? There's always a back channel. There's always a, a goat path on the mountain you don't know. So you just do what you can. You know, I, I rode a lot of bikes. I did a lot of rowers. I, I had to alter my training from the traditional means my entire life. Maybe it wasn't so bad for me because I didn't know any better. But I think the idea that like you're going to follow this path and it's going to be easier, you're going to follow someone else's path isn't isn't true. So do what you can. It's you're going to adapt. You're going to find what you can do. You're going to do it to the best of your ability so you can chase 
being the best version of you, you can, you're going to hit another roadblock. You're going to have another surgery. You're going to get another injection in your foot. You're going to change orthotics again. You're going to change what you do. And you're just going to do as much work as you can where you can. And it's just at the end of the day, you, you don't realize it. you just do the work, adapt, do the work, adapt, do what you can, do what you can. No plan is going to survive first contact, adapt again, do what you can. And all of a sudden you'll look up one day and you're going, shoot, I'm going to, I'm going to earn my first start at Penn state. Like, and you don't know how you got there other than you were just following paths and trails through this, through this crazy forest and you couldn't see out of the other side. But if you just keep doing what you can and keep following the path that you're able to, eventually you just may get there. Yeah, that's uh, our company's uh, motto is keep chopping wood. So yep. that's uh, that's exactly everything that we preach and everything that we talk about is just keep going and you keep adapting, you keep making your plan, you keep changing. But as long as you keep going, at the end of the day, you'll be there. A hundred, a hundred percent. I mean, it, it sounds it sounds almost cheesy, right? When when people say, "Oh, like just chase your dreams, do what you can." Like, no, it's going to be a rough path, but if you're adaptable and you always do what you're able to you'll, you'll, you'll keep gaining ground. You may gain ground slower than someone else. You may be faster than some of the other people, but as long as you keep moving forward and keep gaining ground, you're, you're okay. That's awesome. Coach. Thank you very much for being on this podcast. There's so much good stuff here. I I have like a whole page of (laughs) notes over here that I'm going to be able to go through and trying to make some content out of and get the message out there and using my athletes. So thank you again. Thank you very much for being on. Again, 100% appreciate the opportunity. Uh, don't know if I, why I qualified for it, but always happy to talk and, and look forward to staying in touch. Thank you for listening. Keep chopping wood.